0: I want to read our text this morning before I pray, and we are in 1 Peter 4, uh, verses 7 through 11. Let's read God's word together. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks, as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let me pray. Father, we need you this morning. God, we don't want to come in our own strength. We want to come in dependency on you this morning, whether it's uh, teaching or singing, playing an instrument or listening, Father, we need your help. So I ask for your spirit, Father, to fall on this place. God, I have words on paper and say words and it can reach ears, but Father, only you can penetrate hearts. So I ask that you would penetrate hearts today. God, in in this room, with our children, in their classrooms, Father, across this city, with all of our sister churches that are co-laboring with us this morning, would you speak? Would you penetrate hearts? Father, we think of our brothers and sisters across the globe who don't have the opportunity to do what we're doing this morning because of persecution. God, would you uphold them? Give them strength in their suffering. Would many come to know you because they're unashamed of Christ and they suffer for the sake of Christ? Would you do that around this globe? God, for those that came in here this morning that are weary, that are tired, that are frustrated, that are dealing with chronic sickness, disappointment, God, would you be seen as their all this morning? You are all in all, and it's all because of Christ. So would you do that in a miraculous way this morning? In Christ's name, amen. So we're again in 1 Peter. Every time I get up here to preach, the last several years, I think it's been two or three years now, I've been teaching through the book of 1 Peter. And as you heard me read this morning, it's the text is 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11. This is actually our 13th sermon in 1 Peter. Um, So I appreciate y'all hanging in there with me. Before I jump into our text, I want to sort of pull back and look at sort of what Peter, this sort of picture Peter's been painting over these last several sections of his letter This is number 13, but I want to remind you of 9 through 12 real quick this morning. If you remember, Sermon 9, we called Five Marks of Healthy Christian Community, and that was all from one verse, 1 Peter 3, 8. And those five marks were unity, sympathy, humility, compassion, and love. And we said that these are the key ingredients characteristics needed in the local church to sustain lasting healthy community. And then we spent three sermons on this topic of suffering for righteousness' sake. First Peter 3 9 through chapter 4 and verse 6. And we called these suffering for righteousness' sake because that was this topic for all three sermons. In the first two sermons we talked about a motivation for living this way. And then the last sermon in that little mini series We talked about how we ought to suffer instead of sin. Choose suffering over sin because this is what Christ did. He suffered for righteousness' sake. Which brings us to today's sermon, sermon number 13. This is a spoiler alert. Here's the title. I haven't told you yet. The end of all things is near, which it doesn't sound like a community passage, but it is. It's talking about community, and we'll see this in great detail in just a few minutes. But I don't want us to miss the point as we dive into a specific part of this letter to see what Peter is really trying to do here over these last four sermons, and that is he sticks suffering for righteousness' sake right between two discourses on proper community, how you operate in the local church. So I think what Peter is trying to get across to us here, the point that he's trying to make is that we need Community to live and thrive in the age of persecution, in the end times. That's why he sandwiches this suffering for righteousness' sake right between two paragraphs on community. How properly functioning Christian community works. We need each other. I think that's his point here. You need church community. You need church family around you to continue to uphold you and edify you and press the promises of God into your life as you get this persecution from society. This is Peter's overall point. So with that in mind, let's dive into today's text. And again, the title for my sermon is The End of All Things is at hand. And you might sort of look at this and think, man, this is going to be about the apocalypse. We're going to be talking about dragons and earthquakes and zombies. No, not zombies. That's not in the Bible. This is not the case. Sounds apocalyptic, but it's not. And I added this subtitle to sort of help us point us in the right direction. Radically Ordinary Christian Community. So the end of all things is is at hand, radically ordinary Christian community. One author said, Juan Sanchez said, living with the end in view is not a call to radical Christianity, but to normal Christianity. And Peter tells us, this is why I titled it this, in the first phrase in this verse, the end of all things is at hand. Then he tells us to act in a surprisingly ordinary way. Nothing flashy here. He's sort of framing the conversation. That's what this first phrase is doing. He's putting a frame around what he's about to tell us. And you put frames around things in order to sort of focus your attention, right, on the thing that the author, the artist, the curator, the thing that they want you to focus on. That's why we put a frame around things. And that's what Peter's doing by telling us the end of all things is near, And then he adds this word, therefore. The end of all things is near, therefore live like this. The coming end is the frame or basis for how we should live. So Peter's saying, don't lose your focus, church. Be smart about the times in which you live. I don't believe Peter is warning us of of pending judgment here, although we should be warned. That the end is near and I don't think he is either telling us you know be encouraged Christ is coming back although we should be encouraged that Christ is coming back in this context I think Peter is saying don't waste your time don't lose your focus church keep your focus on the times that you live keep your focus on the nearness of eternity and remember this is a community passage right Keep your life in Christian community in the framework of the end is near. Or I can say it more succinctly, live in light of eternity within the local church. This is the mindset. This is the framework. This puts a sense of urgency and magnitude on living this way. Now, you might read this verse in 1 Peter and and sort of think, man, Peter, you sort of lost all credibility with me. Because 2,000 years ago, you said the end was near, and here we are 2,000 years later, no Christ yet. You have to understand the nuances of the Greek language. Peter is not talking, this Greek word is not talking about a specific point in time, but rather the Greek word is a, a duration of time or a period of time. So what Peter is trying to do here is saying that we are living in the final stages of God's redemptive plan which means that Christ could come back at any moment. Nothing's preventing God from sending Christ back. Everything has happened already in order for Christ to return. All acts of the drama of redemption are complete. Creation, fall, the call of Abraham, the exodus, the kingdom of Israel, the exile and return of the Jewish people, the birth of Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and then finally his pouring out of the Spirit onto the church. And we're ready for Christ to come back. That's the point that Peter's getting at. There's nothing left for God to do that would prevent him from sending Christ. The end of all things at his hand was true 2,000 years ago, it's true today, and it will be true 2,000 years from now if Christ doesn't return. We are living in the final stages of God's redemptive process. He could come back before lunch. Knowing this should change how we live, right? What you believe about the future should change how you live today. If you really believe in the nearness of eternity, it should change how you live. And that's what Peter is sort of exhorting us to here. So Peter urges us to do four things, given that the end is near, given that we're in the final stage of God's redemptive process. And as I I said earlier, nothing extraordinary here. But what this implies is that as persecution increases, as suffering increases while living in this final stage of God's redemptive plan, we tend to lack in some of these basic fundamental activities that make Christian community thrive. That's the danger, I think, that Peter's getting at here by keeping this as simple as he does. Let me walk you through just the four and then we'll unpack each one in detail. So the first thing he's going to call us to, that the end is near, is prayer. The second is this deep, fervent love for one another. Pretty basic, right? Number three, hospitality. And number four, using your gifts for the church. Three out of, the, out of these four, Peter says to do toward one another or for one another which tells us this is largely about Christian community. How do we live together in this end time? So let's start with number one, prayer. So prayer is the only one that is not a one another exhortation. Here's the verse. 1 Peter 4, 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. He tells us, Get control of your mind, get control of your thoughts, and get control of your actions, but not without purpose. The purpose is for the sake of your prayers. Get control so that you can pray more effectively. That's the point here. Peter's first concern, as he sort of frames this discussion in we're in the end times, is prayer. So we don't go into this like fatalistic, oh, the end is near, you know we'll just give up or we win because Christ is coming back, so we'll just kick back and wait, you know No. we pray. We're earnest about our praying. The end is near, therefore we pray. The end is near, therefore we don't pray less, we pray more, which is something we're trying to do as a church every Wednesday. At, 12 noon, we gather here and we, we pray because the end is near. The end is at hand. So the way we help our prayer life is by maintaining self-control and being in control of your thoughts, right? So self-control here literally means, like, be sensible. Have a practical understanding don't live in the ignorance, in ignorance, ignorance of what? That we are living in the final stage of God's redemptive plan. Don't lose sight of that. Be alert. Be serious about praying because of the times that we live in. He also says be sober-minded. Get, con- get control of your thoughts. We know how, how bad our thoughts can run, especially when fear comes in. And he says, be sober-minded. So sober sort of makes you think of the word drunkenness, right? Drunkenness is a loss of control. So Peter's saying, maintain control of your thoughts so that you can pray. Don't lose lose your sense of reality. So the way you keep your mind equipped for prayer is by focusing on the nearness of eternity. Keep your mind focused on how near this is. And then you can pray more effectively. Preoccupation by the doomsday, end of world folks sort of results in hysteria. Like, what are we going to do? We've got to do something. For the Christian, our response is prayer. Prayer is the rational, wise response to living with the end in view. Again, basics. Basics. We're not doomsday preppers. We remain in control of our thoughts and remain vigilant in prayer. Peter knows this well because you remember Peter, he failed at this actually, right? And when when you fail at something, man, you really learn the lesson, right? Remember Peter with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? And Jesus' life was coming to an end. And he prayed all the more. And he told Peter: watch and pray, Peter. And Peter failed. And so now Peter's saying, don't be like me. Be alert. Don't be asleep when the enemy comes. Don't get lazy in your prayer life. Be alert. Be serious. Be about prayer. That's what Peter is pointing us to here. So the first radically ordinary activity that Peter calls us to is prayer. The second is love. The second is love. That's verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Above all, of first importance. His first concern might have been prayer, but of highest, highest importance is love. The fundamental ingredient that enables Christian community to thrive in end times is love. Again, let's keep the context sort of on our minds, right? As suffering increases, as persecution increases, as we resist sin and as we're rejected by society, there is a vulnerability for our love to decline amongst each other. That's sort of implied here. Otherwise, Peter wouldn't be telling us to love one another fervently. So Peter urges us to continue... Earnest in love. This is not the first time he told us this. In chapter 1, verse 22, he told us to love each other fervently. So as persecution increases, love is at risk, folks. So, earnestly. This, some translations, I think, were said fervently or deeply. It literally means to stretch out. Have your love stretched out, both in endurance and in depth for each other. Stretch out your love for one another. Let me just restate Peter's, what he's, what he's saying in my own words. Of first importance, keep, he says keep, up the unceasing activity of loving one another with a high degree of intensity. Could someone look at your relationships within this church, your interactions with each other, and say, man, they love each other with a high degree of intensity. This is what Peter is calling us to because we're living in the final stages of God's redemptive process. And Peter, he doesn't just tell us, love each other earnestly and leave it at that. He gives us the effect of this. He shows us why this is going to make community last and thrive, and you you see the phrase, love this way since or because love covers a multitude of sins. One of the reasons for our earnest pursuit of love is that it covers a multitude of sins. Now, Peter, he's not making a theological statement about God here, although it is true that in God's love, in the shed blood of Christ, our sins are covered. But that's not what he's saying here. And neither is Peter saying that we should take sin lightly. He's not saying that we should cover up our sin. Peter is clear on this in his letter. That we are to live a holy and righteous lifestyle. Christian community only thrives when we expose and deal with our sins. So this is not what Peter's saying here. So what is Peter saying Peter here is making a statement about unity in the body of Christ. Above all else, love is the main ingredient for lasting unity in the local church. Peter gets this phrase from a proverb, which would have been very well known at that time. It's Proverbs 10, verse 12. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. So the Peter's instruction here is best understood when you look at the verse where he got it from, right? And so when you study Proverbs, you see these couplets. Sometimes the first part of the couplet says a statement, and the second part says the same thing, just slightly different in order to reinforce the truth. Sometimes the first part of the couplet says one thing, and the second part says the exact opposite, which is what we have here, right? So Peter is doing this exact opposite couplet, or or Proverbs is doing this exact opposite couplet, So how does that help us today? Understand what Peter's teaching us. When Peter says that love covers a multitude of sins, he means love smothers strife. All right? So hate is the opposite of love. Stirs up strife is the opposite of cover all offenses. So this deep, enduring, fervent love for one another is the tool that covers this stirring hatred stirs. Every little thing gets on your nerves by that person, right? But love covers all that. A lack of love tends to stir the hate, but deep love covers. We want to cover the strife, smother it so it, it can't come to its fullest expression, and that's what one of my favorite commentators on First Peter's, Karen Jobs, and she says, The love that covers sin is best understood as a forbearance that does not let wrongs done within the Christian community come to their fullest and most virulent expressions. This is what deep love does, and this is why we pursue earnest love for each other, so that these things don't come to their fullest expression and damage the unity within the body of Christ. The risk of waning love is a real danger for the church, especially as persecution increases. When Jesus was telling his disciples, giving them, here are some signs of the end times. You know what one of those signs was? The love of many will grow cold. So Jesus warns us that this would happen. In the end times, in the final stages of redemption, there is this risk Of our love for each other growing cold. And it would be Satan's delight. For our love to grow cold for each other. No better success for him. Than for hatred to stir in the body of Christ. Rather than love. This love is not so much about emotional intensity. As it is about persisting through difficult times. Sort of like family love. Man, family life can be difficult, stressful, wears on you sometimes, but we persist with enduring love for our family. And that's what Peter is calling us to here. Enduring love, deep, stretched out love. The downward spiral of hate is broken with and only with love. Love covers the stirring that occurs in broken community. It's broken community when, when hate is stirring in that community. And love covers that brokenness. Martin Luther King Jr. knew much about the effect of the ethic of earnest love above all else. In an article he wrote entitled, An Experiment in Love, published in September 1958, King said this. It's it's kind of a long quote, so I want to take it sentence by sentence because it's so beautiful. He said, the cross is the eternal expression of the length to which God will go in order to restore broken community. That is love. That is deep, fervent love for restored community. And this is what Christ did on the cross. He goes on, the resurrection is a symbol of God's triumph over all the forces that seek to block community. Community wins. The resurrection says community wins. The Holy Spirit is the continuing community creating reality that moves through history. The Spirit has been released on us to restore broken community. And so he says, he who works against community is working against the whole of creation. That's a pretty large indictment. If you're one stirring the hate, you're working against all of creation because God is working to restore community. Therefore, if I respond to hate with a reciprocal hate, I do nothing but intensify the crack in broken community. I can only close the gap in broken community by meeting hate with love above all else. Love one another earnestly because love covers a multitude of. Of sins, the third radically ordinary activity that Peter calls us to is hospitality. Hospitality. Here's the verse: First Peter four nine. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. This is pretty remarkable to me. Like if I was making a list of what I want to tell the church when the end is near, I don't know that hospitality would make the list. But here Peter says uh, the end is near. By the way, have people over for dinner, right? It's like, whoa. This really raises the importance of hospitality in our minds. How significant it is to practice hospitality. It is the distinguishing mark of Christianity. And I believe even more so in today's isolated social media world. Hospitality flies in the face of our individualistic mindset of today. And I must confess... This is tough for me. I sort of feel like Superman sometimes and I have my fortress of solitude at home. Man, it's my castle. I'm going to retreat from the world and just relax. But this is not the New Testament model. New Testament Christianity includes sharing of our homes. This was especially needful in the first century because they didn't have big, beautiful places like this to worship. They're in danger of persecution. And so they needed homes for their people to go to and worship. And so it was a huge risk for somebody to open up their home because it would mark them out for anti-Christian persecution. Everybody knew that they were gathering in that home to worship. And the fact that Peter adds this word grumbling here really lets us know this is no easy task to open up your home, letting somebody come into your personal space. I love my personal space. <laughs> but Peter's saying, open, open up. Peter is urging us to use our homes for kingdom work. Now, I don't want to limit this to just an in-home service. Hospitality, in general, is a posture of open-heartedness, right? It has a lot to do with maybe bringing people into your home, but, man, just have open-heartedness. That's hospitality. One, we, we talked about this in a staff meeting a few weeks ago when I was telling them I was preaching on this, and someone looked up hospitality or hospitable on Google, we did our Googles, and it said this, Friendly and welcoming to guests or visitors. And then I think it was Richard who said, A lover of new people. This is hospitality. A lover of new people. Are you a lover of new people? So let me, let me throw out two challenges as the Spirit sort of works on our hearts in the area of hospitality. First is Yes, we live in the 21st century, but we still need homes for church to work, right? So one of the things that sort of can be a roadblock to growing our small group ministry here is that we don't have the homes. We have the leaders in many cases and the teachers, but we just need homes. So maybe God has you in a season of life where you, wanna, you can open up your home. This is how hospitality can work in the 21st century, can serve the church by opening up your home. Challenge number two, have people over. Have them over your house, or maybe you wanna at least go to a restaurant or have coffee with somebody here at Hope Point. The idea of hospitality is again, strangers, new people. So maybe they're not new to Hope Point, but they're strangers to you still and and you need to gather with them and learn from them and learn about them because this is what's gonna strengthen our church. And I would even take it one step further Go out and have dinner and coffee with people that don't look like you. On Wednesday this week, we had our uh, race, pastor's race roundtable. And at the end of our discussion this week, Pastor Walter Belton, before he prayed, he said, don't think that you can have diversity on Sunday if you don't have it Monday through Saturday. Don't think that you can have diversity on Sunday if you don't have it Monday through Saturday. That hit me. This is what hospitality is. Let's be hospitable for hospitality is the key for radically ordinary end time living. It's part of the fiber that will strengthen us during increased persecution in this final stage of God's redemptive process. Let's be radically hospitable. All right, final one, number four. Final activity, radically ordinary activity of end time living, is using your gifts to serve one another. So this comes from verses 10 and 11, but let's look at verse 10 first. Peter says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace, as each has received a gift. So the assumption that Peter has in mind here is that everybody has at least one gift, You might have more than one gift, but everybody in the body of Christ has a gift. And and so that means that everybody can do something for the body of Christ. Everybody can contribute to the work of Christ. Everybody in this room can contribute to the work of God through Hope Point. Gift is a, it's sort of a churchy word, I think, in this context. And so what, is, what does it mean? Here's what Wayne Grudem, how he defines spiritual gift. A spiritual gift is any talent or ability which is empowered by the Holy Spirit and able to be used in the ministry of the church. It's a talent, ability, gifting, empowered by the Holy Spirit, right? It can be used in all of life. You might benefit from this gift in, in vocationally or in your family, but its primary use is in the church for one another. The New Testament has five lists of gifts, and all five of those are different in some way, which tells us that gifts are, that those are not exhaustive lists. That's why Peter calls it a varied or manifold grace of God, because there is limitless variations to the talents and abilities that we can praise God with. It can range from the familiars of preaching and teaching to the things like Paul included leadership is a spiritual gift. Generosity is a spiritual gift. Administration is a spiritual gift. Acts of mercy are a spiritual gift. The list can go on and on. The point is, what is your gift and how are you using it to serve the church? Serve one another, as Peter says. Radical end-time living for the Christian means being engaged in the local church by using your talents and abilities to build up the church. Everybody is here for a reason. You have something to offer the body of Christ. Look how Peter describes those who used your gift, right? Here's the one another. You're serving the church, each other. And what does Peter call those people? Good stewards of God's varied grace. Good stewards of God's varied grace. What's a steward? Here's one definition. One who is entrusted with management and connection with transcendent matters. The gifts, the talents, the abilities that you have, you are managing a transcendent matter, right? As, As insignificant as you think your gift is, It is on loan from God. And you're managing this gift for the time being. You're managing something bigger than yourself. If your gift is just words of encouragement to people, that is a transcendent matter that God has trusted you with. You are his manager. And he says, manage it well. Your talent is not yours. It belongs to another. And when you use your gifts for the benefit of the body of Christ or one another, Peter describes this as being a good steward of God's very grace. So here's a pretty heavy indictment if you think of its opposite. If you don't use your talent and gifts or abilities to serve the church, To serve one another. You're not a good manager of God's grace. That's tough. Your gifts are not for you. They are for the benefit of those around you. The benefit of the church. Now let me just pause and put a little parenthesis here. That doesn't mean that you have to be on one of our volunteer roles here. To be a good steward of God's very grace. This is bigger than that. Using it. You can use your gift to serve somebody in a coffee shop just by giving them encouragement, hearing them, teaching them, right? Although we love to fill up our volunteer roles, so I'm not saying don't volunteer for us. We would love that. But this is also bigger than that, that you're serving the church in some way, whether inside these walls or outside these walls. Good managers of God's manifold grace don't hide their talents or spend them on themselves. You all know the parable that Jesus told of the talents? Do you know what he called the one that buried his talent? Wicked, slothful, worthless, and was cast into utter darkness. So feel the weight of that. How we use our talents and gifts is serious business. We should take this seriously. How do you manage God's grace, right? You've got all this grace just showered on us in a, in a myriad of ways. Part of that grace is the gifts that he has given you. How in the world do we manage all this grace that God is showering on us? The answer, serve. We're, we're not sponges that soak up all of God's grace and it's just for us. We are to be conduits of God's grace. Receive that grace and then bend it out and dispense it through service to the church, serving one another. One writer said this, grace is wasted if it only comes to us but does not move through us. Grace is wasted if it only comes to us but does not move through us. Don't waste the grace. Calvin called this the abuse of God's grace. You want to know how you can abuse God's grace? By not bending it out to others and serving others. So Peter, he expounds on this in verse 11. He says, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. So Peter calls gifts and talents varied, manifold grace. But now he sort of puts them in just two categories speaking, speaking oracles of God, or serving, serving by the strength that God supplies. Speaking is not limited to preaching, okay? It's teaching evangelism, I'd put singing in that category, words of encouragement. It's folks that are teaching in our HP kids right now to children, it's small group leaders that are teaching, it's youth workers that are teaching. Everyone who speaks the gospel is speaking oracles of God. The, these words are from God. If you serve, which everything else falls into this category, administration, generosity, hospitality, and a myriad of other gifts, That strength comes from God. That's his point here, his overarching point. Do you see it? If you're speaking, it's coming from God. If you're serving, the strength is coming from God. You're relying on God. There's a high dependency on God to do this kind of work. Many times, serving can be physically, mentally, and emotionally draining. We've all been there. Just feel that burnout, man, like serving the church nonstop, right? So what does it look like to serve tired and weary, but serve in the strength that God supplies? Recently, I I picked up a book that includes all of Martin Luther King Jr.'s famous speeches and writings and articles, interviews, which is why I quoted him earlier. But this week, I read the speech that he gave at the end of the Selma march, four-day march, 54 miles from Selma, Alabama to the state's capital. In fact, this month, March, marks the 55-year anniversary of that march. In that speech on March 25, 1965, he told the story of Ms. Pollard, a 70-year-old African-American woman in declining health who marched in the Montgomery bus boycotts. He said that Sister Pollard one day was asked while she was walking if she wanted to ride, and when she answered no, the person asked her, well, aren't you tired? And with her ungrammatical profundity, as King put it, she said, My feet is tired, but my soul is rested. Ms. Pollard was marching and serving the African-American community, the nation, and the church in the strength that God supplies. I think this is what it looks like to serve in the strength that God supplies. We can say that our feet are tired, but our soul is rested because we're working for a bigger cause we're serving for a bigger cause. This type of strength is the strength that God supplies. And when you do this, this is the key to this, when you do this, God gets the glory, which is the end goal. So why do we speak oracles of God? Why do we serve in the strength that God supplies? Why is it this way, Peter tells us in this verse, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, the reason why the use of our gifts requires a high degree of dependency on God is so that God will get the glory. That's what's going on here. A high dependency on God gives God higher glory. God does not get glory when you serve out of your own strength or speak your own words. We deprive him of his glory when we try to do this from our own strength and from our own mental capacity speak and serve out of your dependency on god and he will get the glory before we close just look at look at how he says this because this you might think he could say it this other way which he could say in order that in everything god may be glorified through you or through your gifts right could probably say that but he doesn't he says that god might be glorified through jesus christ When you speak oracles of God, when you serve out of the strength of God, it's all pointing to Jesus Christ. How do you know that your words are from God? How do you know that you're serving in the strength that God supplies when Christ is magnified? That's the answer. This is the litmus test for our dependency on God. The degree to which you depend on God is the degree to which Christ will be magnified in our gifting. I'll say that again. The degree degree to which you depend on God is the degree to which Christ will be magnified in our gifting. This thought sends Peter into a magnificent doxology where we will end. To him belong the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let us be marked by these radically ordinary activities of prayer, fervent love, hospitality, and serving one another for the glory of God through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we try to work on our, on our own, Father. We, we try to do this in our own strength. So, Father, forgive us. Help us be a church, be a people who are radically ordinary. Who understand the times in which we live and it sends our knee, our, us to our knees in fervent prayer. Help us keep control of our thoughts and our actions so that we may pray more effectively. Lord, give us a deep and earnest love for each other. God, it's hard It's hard to live in in community and in family without the potential for hate being stirred. So would you move in such a way in this church, Father, where our love is stretched out for each other so that it covers, it covers the brokenness that stirs up hate and we respond in love for one another. God, may that love for each other manifest itself in hospitality and being with each other and loving new people and welcoming guests and visitors and showing them the love of Christ through the simplicity of being together. God, move in us. uh, We are prone to to be abusers of your grace, use those gifts and talents to build our own little kingdom. But God, would you move in a miraculous way in our hearts? Help us see how, when, and where to use our gifts for your kingdom and for Christ's glory. So Father, do this in our hearts. We're weak without you. We're prone to sin. So would your spirit move in our hearts to make Christ be magnified because of our dependence on you. In Christ's name, amen.